You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. This week we hear from Dr. David Platt. God has designed men and women equally valuable, yet sexually different, so that through their union and marriage with one another, He might show the relationship between Christ and His church. He might show the church in glad submission to the groom who died to save her. Our creation as man and woman is part of an overarching drama unfolding on the pages of human history where we're uniquely designed as men and women to come together in marriages that display the gospel throughout the world. In October of 2014, the ERLC hosted their inaugural national conference at the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. The conference was entitled, The Gospel, Homosexuality, and the Future of Marriage. Dr. David Platt addressed those in attendance about how the Great Commission is to be carried out in our singleness and in our marriage. At the time, Dr. Platt was the pastor of Brook Hills Church in Birmingham, Alabama. He now serves as the president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, if you uh, have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 1. It is an honor to be here. I have deepest respect and affection for Dr. Moore and the work of the ERLC. And praise God for what he and these brothers and sisters are doing to serve the church in our culture and in cultures around the world, for that matter. I want to preach God's Word tonight out of the overflow of deep personal and pastoral burdens in my heart pertaining to the church and our culture. So, on one hand, my heart is encouraged Particularly among younger evangelicals, I sense opposition to injustice regarding the poor and the orphan and the enslaved. And I am grateful to God for increased awareness of issues like starvation and sex trafficking in the world. I'm zealous to see the power of the gospel in the lives of Christians fueling long-term commitments to address these issues. So I'm encouraged. At the same time, I'm concerned by the lack of zeal, again, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly among younger evangelicals, on social issues that are just as, if not much more important, like abortion or sexual immorality or so-called same-sex marriage. On some of these issues, younger evangelical Christians and prominent Christian leaders are often strangely quiet. We're passionate in our stand against poverty and slavery, injustice that we should stand against, but issues that don't bring us really into conflict with the culture around us. But on issues like Abortion or so-called same-sex marriage, issues that are much more contentious in the culture around us, instead of being passionate, we are passive. And our supposed social justice can quickly seem a lot more like a selective social injustice. And I'm zealous to show that followers of Christ do not have the option of picking and choosing which social issues we're going to apply biblical truth to. 
I am zealous to show that the same gospel that compels us to combat poverty is the exact same gospel that compels us to defend marriage. The same heart of God that moves us to war against sex trafficking moves us to war against sexual immorality in all of its forms. So brothers and sisters, there are battles raging rapidly on the front lines of our culture, and we don't have the option of deciding which ones we're going to fight and which ones we're going to flout. Elizabeth Rundle Charles, commenting on Luther's Martin Luther's confrontation of key issues in his day, said, It is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our fidelity. It is to confess Christ we are called, to confess Christ that we are called, not merely to profess. For if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on all the battlefronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. If we are going to lead the church in our culture, we must engage the battles that are being waged in our culture. And for far too long, we have flinched on a multiplicity of battlefronts. Francis Schaeffer wrote these prophetic words years ago that are surely all the more applicable today. He said, we must ask where we as evangelicals have been in the battle for truth and morality in our culture. Have we as evangelicals been on the front lines contending for the faith and confronting the moral breakdown over the last 40 to 60 years? Most of the evangelical world has not been active in the battle or even been able to see that we are in a battle. The last 60 years, Schaefer said, have given birth to a moral disaster. And what have we done? Sadly, we must say that the evangelical world has been part of the disaster. More than this, the evangelical response itself has been a disaster. Where's the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctly biblical Christian answers? With tears, we must say it's not there that a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the world spirit of this present age. And more than this, we can expect the future to be a further disaster if the evangelical world does not take a stand for biblical truth and morality in the full spectrum of life. So, I want to... Just one, be one more voice joining the chorus in this conference, calling us to contrite, courageous, compassionate battle on the front line, not just of our culture, but of cultures around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in that vein that I, w- I want to speak on marriage and missions, how singleness and marriage connect to the great commission. I want to do that by taking us back to the beginning, to the start of scripture. I want to remind us of four simple, significant biblical foundations. And then based upon these truths in the word, I want to call us to mission in the world. So based upon these biblical foundations, I want to put before you then four missiological implications for marriage and singleness. So let's start by reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. So we're picking up here on the sixth day of creation. And the Bible tells us that God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, four biblical foundations. Simple, significant. Number one, God creates us as a demonstration of his glory. God creates us. God creates man and woman, men and women. He creates us as a demonstration of his glory. Genesis 1 is a glorious tribute to the greatness of God as our creator. You you just consider the wonder even in the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That sentence alone is breathtaking in its wonder, and it alone could capture all of our time and attention tonight. In the beginning, God. He was in the beginning. He had no creator. God was and is and always will be. And he speaks. And when he speaks, all he has to say is, let there be and they come to be. Genesis 1, the world is literally fashioned by the word of God. And sustained by the power of God, the stars are held in their place by his sovereign strength. The oceans stop and are held at bay by his divine command. The sun and moon and rise and fall according to his omnipotent leadership. Animals eat according to the providence of God. This is not natural selection. This is supernatural provision. If God were to withdraw his power from creation for a split second, the universe and all that is in it, including you and me, in this room at this moment, would cease to exist in the same split second. He sustains it all. And it's all good. After every day, he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. Leading up to the sixth day when God said, let's make men. At the end of that day, he said, it was very good. So what was so special about man? Man Woman created in the image of God with a unique capacity to know God, to walk with God, to worship God as a unique reflection of God. Now to think of this, when I, when I hear people say about my two-year-old son that he's, he's your spitting image, to think that you and I, a spitting image of reflection of God himself. And in this way, We have been created as a demonstration of his glory. The first command that God gives to his people in verse 28 is to be fruitful, to fill the earth with his image for his glory. God wants his image. God wants reflections of his glory multiplied throughout the earth. This is why God creates us, as a demonstration of his glory. John Piper did not make that up. God did. Biblical foundation number one. God creates us as a demonstration of his glory. Biblical foundation number two. God designs us for the display of his gospel. God designs us for the display of his gospel. So it's not just man in general that God creates, because Genesis 1.27 tells us that male and female, he created them. And then when we turn into chapter 2, we see the story behind this reality told in verse 18. 
And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we have man and woman, both created with equal dignity, equal value, equal importance before God and each other, both made in the image of God, both made to resemble God, both made to relate to God, yet clearly designed with different roles. Genesis 2 goes out of the way to show us that God has made man and woman in a way that complements one another in wonderfully beautiful ways. Physically, man and woman designed by God to complement one another, literally to fit together sexually, to find their deepest unity with one another at the point where they are most different. Which is what Danny Aiken obviously spoke on last night. That brother baffles me. <laughs> the distinguished president of Southeastern Theological Seminary eminent preacher, Bible scholar, who loves and knows every portion of God's Word. And yet, as everyone who knows him knows, his favorite book in all the Bible is the Song of Solomon. I mean, really, out of the canon of Holy Scripture, from the Pentateuch to the Psalms to the glory of Christ and the Gospels to the wonder of salvation in Romans to the anticipation of his return and revelation, Danny Aiken's favorite book is the one on sex. But we know it's more than just physical complementarity here. God designs man here as the head of woman. And I use the word head here in the way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. And in that chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul points back to Genesis 2. He says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now, clearly, this is not male domination or superiority. This is not female subjugation or inferiority. No, the Bible is not addressing dignity or value here, but role. Man created to be the head and woman created to be the helper. A word that's used two times in Genesis 2. Verse 18, I'll make him a helper fit for him. Verse 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. And that was not good. After everything else in all creation had been called good, this is the only thing that was not good. Man in need of a helper that would be like him, made in the image of God, but different from him. And God designed those differences for a reason. And Ephesians 5 tells us the reason. Where Paul says, again, the husband is the head of his wife. And then he goes on to say, just as Christ is the head of the church. And then Paul, we know this, we've heard this at this conference, quotes from Genesis 2, 24, to describe marriage, this one flesh union of a man and a woman coming together as head and helper in loving authority and glad submission. And Paul says, this is referring to Christ and his church. So see it, God has designed men and women 
equally valuable, yet sexually different, so that through their union and marriage with one another, he might show the relationship between Christ and his church. He might show Christ's loving authority who lays down his life for his bride. He might show the church in glad submission to the groom who died to save her. Our creation as man and woman is part of an overarching drama unfolding on the pages of human history where we're uniquely designed as men and women to come together in marriages that display the gospel throughout the world. God literally physically designs us for the display of his gospel. God creates us as a demonstration of his glory. He designs us for the display of his gospel. Third biblical foundation, God judges us by his righteous law. He judges us by his righteous law. So we come to chapter 3. The man and woman created for the glory of God to display the gospel of God turn from the grace of God. They question God's word. The first question appears in the Bible. In Genesis 3, as Satan asked, did God actually say, and for the first time, don't miss it, the most deadly spiritual force on earth was covertly smuggled into the world. The assumption that what God has said is subject to human judgment. Eve, let us talk about what God said and see how we feel about it. After all, you're a better arbiter of truth than God. Certainly you know what is better for your life than God. And so questioning God's word then leads to doubting God's character. Here in Genesis 3, Eve subtly transfers her trust from God to herself as she stops believing that God is good. All of which leads to spurning God's authority. In sin, she and her husband who passively sits by abdicating his responsibility to lead They eat a piece of fruit and assert their independence from God only to immediately find themselves standing in condemnation before God, full of guilt and shame and fear, now covering themselves as they cower before God because God is their judge and his righteous law was resolutely clear. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so by the end of chapter three, men and women are cast out of God's presence, now slaves to sin, destined for death. And it's not just them, right? It's all of us. Romans 5 makes clear that from That one sin came condemnation to all men for all have sinned. This is all of our story. All of us in this room have questioned God's word, doubted God's character, and all of us in this room have spurned God's authority. We've rebelled against him, and we all experience the consequences of that rebellion around us in a world of sin and suffering, disease and death, injustice abounding on every level, economically, ethnically, socially, most of all spiritually. For every one of our hearts is prone to center on ourselves instead of others in need and instead of the God we most need. And one day we will all stand before this God to be judged by him according to his righteous law. And we will all be guilty in and of ourselves because God judges us by his righteous law. Thankfully, however, that is not the end of the story for the stage is now set for God 
to do the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the shocking, and the scandalous. He comes to the man and the woman, not waiting for them to take the initiative, but taking the initiative himself. He seeks after the guilty. He does what we'll see him do all throughout Scripture, seeking after an idolater named Abraham, and a deceiver named Jacob, and a fugitive in Midian named Moses, and scores of other sinful men and women. Arthur Pink writes, Oh, that we might appreciate more deeply the marvelous condescension of deity in swooping slow, so low as to care for and seek out such poor worms of the dust. And not only does he stoop to seek sinners, but he covers them in their shame. God takes an innocent animal, guilty of nothing, uses its sacrificial death to provide a covering for his guilty creation. And on this day, literally the worst day in all of the world, God gives the greatest news in all the world, saying right in the heart of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel of which Martin Luther said, this one verse embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that's to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Because God promises here to send a man born of woman, Christ himself clothed in human flesh, to conquer sin and defeat Satan through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. So that faith in this promised son who will crush the evil serpent, all who stand condemned before God as judge can be acquitted before God as Savior. Fourth biblical foundation, yes, God judges us by his righteous law, yet God pursues us with his redeeming love. God pursues us with his redeeming love. And these four truths together form the essence of the gospel. The holy God who has created us as a demonstration of his glory, designed us as a display of his grace. We have rebelled against him, sinned against him, turned away from him, and he will judge all of us according to his righteous law. And in our sin, we stand condemned. But God, God stoops to seek us. God bends to bless us. And through the sacrifice of his one and only son on a cross, he pursues us with his redeeming love. I don't want to assume, even in this place, that every one of you has believed these truths and applied them to your heart. So I invite you tonight in this place to see yourself in this story, created by God, designed by God, yet a sinner against God, in need of salvation from God, and see God in loving pursuit of you. See this God bringing you even to this place at this time, this moment on this night to hear this good news of his love for you. So that tonight, right now, where you're sitting, you might turn from your sin and yourself and put all your trust and your hope in God that you might this day be spared his righteous judgment and this day be saved by his redeeming love. And then, when you do, so for all who hold to these biblical foundations, these gospel truths that form a bedrock for our faith, consider the missiological implications for marriage and singleness. Consider the massive ramifications of these truths as they're applied to this social issue in our culture and in cultures of the world. There's so many ramifications. Let me just offer four. 
One, because God creates us, of course, to that first truth, God creates us as a demonstration of his glory. Here's at least one ramification. We must flee sexual immorality for the sake of God's glory in the world. We must flee sexual immorality for the sake of God's glory in the world. God has created us as men and women, for his glory. Our bodies created in his image. Genesis 1 says, for his glory, which is exactly what Paul picks up later on in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The Lord for the body. What a statement. The body, not meant for sexual immorality, but the body is meant for the Lord. The body's created for the Lord. We realize that our bodies have been created not just by God. Our bodies have been created for God. This is huge. We're so driven today by whatever can bring our bodies the most pleasure. What can we see? What can we touch? What can we do? What can we eat? What can we listen to? What can we engage in? We're drowning in a culture that screams out at every turn, please your body. And the Bible shouts at every turn, please God. Our bodies, hear this, our bodies have been created not ultimately for self-gratification, but for God-glorification. And the way we glorify God with our bodies is by fleeing sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexually immoral person sins against its own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, the word the Bible uses there for sexual immorality refers to any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. All sexual looking, thinking, desiring, touching, watching, speaking, acting outside of marriage between a man and a woman. We flee it all. Why? Because we want the glory of God to be made known in the world. And the picture's clear. If we want to display God's glory in the world, then we must flee sexual immorality in our lives. We must flee it, run from it. And not reason with it or rationalize it, but run from it. And we live, we know our, our culture filled with so much sexual immorality. The church in our day filled with so much sexual immorality. This room tonight filled with so much sexual immorality. And the Bible's saying, Run from it. God is saying, run from it. In His grace, He's brought many people to this place this week to hear this one clear word tonight. Flee. And flee the sexual immorality that you're toying with in your life, that you're flirting with in your life, that you're engaging in in your life. And whether it's pornography or potential adultery or any sexual activity at all with someone who's not your husband or wife, flee it. Any and all sexual looking, thinking, desiring, touching, watching, speaking, Acting outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Obviously, homosexual sin is, a, is part of the focus in this conference. And that is certainly included in sexual immorality. But we've got to be careful, obviously, not to be guilty of selective moral outrage when it comes to sexual sin in our culture. If we roll our eyes and shake our heads at court decisions in our country, yet we turn the... TV channel to stare uncritically at adultery and a drama, watch the trivialization of sex in movies, look at seductive images on reality TV shows, the internet, virtual prostitution, and advertisements that sell by provoking sexual interest in us, then we've missed the point. Are these sins acceptable because they're the sins of the majority? 
The reality is, heterosexual, homosexual alike, we are all sexual sinners, and we all need a Savior. And God has done this. He sent His Son to save us from sin, so let us not live in it. We flee sexual immorality for the sake of God's glory in the world. Whether it's married men or women, single men or women, if we want God's glory in the world, we must flee sexual immorality in our lives. Second implication. Because God's designed us for the display of his gospel, we must defend and display sexual complementarity in marriage for the spread of God's gospel in the world. We must defend and display sexual complementarity in marriage for the spread of God's gospel in the world. So why is a conference like this so important? And what does it have to do with missions? Well, it's important and it has everything to do with missions because we love this gospel. And we want this gospel to spread in the world. And we know that when God made man, then woman, then brought them together in a relationship called marriage, he wasn't simply rolling dice, drawing straws, flipping a coin. He was painting a picture. His intent from the start was to illustrate his love for his people. That revelation in Ephesians 5 stunned men and women in the first century. It shocks men and women in the 21st century. And it's momentous for the way we view marriage in any culture. Whether Greco-Roman citizens then or American citizens today, most people view marriage as a means of self-fulfillment accompanied by sexual satisfaction. A man's woman's man or woman's aim is to find a mate who completes him or her. And in that kind of view, marriage is an end in and of itself, and sexual consummation is a celebration of that completion. But the Bible teaches that God created marriage not as an end, but as a means to an end. While personal enjoyment and sexual pleasure are part of God's good plan for marriage, God's purpose does not stop there. He created the marriage relationship to point to a much greater reality. From the moment marriage was instituted, God aimed to give the world an illustration of the gospel. Just as a photograph represents a person or an event at a particular point in history. Marriage was designed by God to reflect a person and an event at the most pivotal point in history. Marriage, according to Ephesians 5, pictures Christ and the church. It's a living portrait drawn by a divine painter who wants the world to know that he loves his people so much that he sent his son to die for their sins. And that picture is portrayed in husbands who reflect Christ's love for the church and the way they relate to their wives. And God intends to portray Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ in the way wives relate to their husband and reflect to, reflect to the world the church's love for Christ. So husbands, just as Christ has done, let's give everything we have for the good of our wives. Let's take responsibility as he has for the beauty of his bride, ready to lay aside our rights, willing to lay down our lives for the sake of her splendor. God has put us in the position we are in so that when we love our wives, the world will see a picture of Christ's love for his people. And wives, I exhort you to show the world how the church relates to Christ and the way you relate to your husband. God desires people to know that following him is not a matter of begrudging submission to a domineering deity. 
God longs for people to know that following him is a matter of glad submission to a loving authority. He's called wives to submit to the loving leadership of a husband who lays down his life for their good. And as this happens, the portrait of marriage being portrayed around the world, God shows people that he can be trusted to lead them with his love. And this is why biblical marriage is worth defending in the face of cultural redefinition. This is why biblical marriage is worth displaying, even when it may mean cultural confrontation. Because God established marriage at the beginning of creation to be one of the primary means by which he illustrates the gospel to a watching world. As husbands sacrifice their lives for the sake of their wives, loving, leading, serving, protecting, providing for them, the world will get a glimpse of God's grace. Sinners will see what God has done in Christ by going to a cross where he suffered and bled and died for them, that they might experience eternal salvation through submission to him. At the same time, they'll see in a wife's relationship to her husband that such submission is not a burden to bear. Onlookers will observe a wife joyfully and continually experiencing her husband's sacrificial love for her and then gladly and spontaneously submitting in selfless love to him. And in this visible representation of the gospel, the world will realize that following Christ is not a matter of duty. Instead, it's a means of full, eternal, satisfying delight. And that is a gospel the world desperately needs to see. We know there is no question that today's cultural climate presents a huge opportunity for gospel witness, for mission. As spiritual darkness engulfs the picture of marriage in our culture, spiritual light is going to shine all the brighter the picture of a husband who lays down his life for his wife and a wife who joyfully follows her husband's loving leadership. God's design for marriage is far more breathtaking, far more satisfying than anything we can create on our own. So let's give ourselves to his design. Let's let this moment drive us to revive our marriages across the church so that the gospel of God on display in marriage might be all the more clear in us in and through his church in the middle of our culture and to the cultures of the world that need to see the gospel. Which leads to the third implication, corresponding to that third biblical foundation. Because God judges us by his righteous law, we must work for justice in the world in order to exalt the judge of the world. We must work for justice in the world in order to exalt the judge of the world. So justice is important to God. Therefore, justice must be important to us. And people say you need to be careful not to lose sight of the gospel as you focus on social issues. And that's a good warning, a needed warning in light of theological liberalism that often comes on the wings of social ministry and social issues. However, I'm convinced most of us as Christians in our culture and most of the churches we're a part of lost sight of the gospel a long time ago in our lack of engagement with social issues. We desperately need our eyes open to injustice around and within us. So there's so much, obviously, we could dive into on that point when it comes to issues, social issues like poverty or abortion. But even when it comes to sexuality, just let me make a brief connection here between what we're talking about in this conference and the injustice of sex trafficking and sex slavery around the world. So we hear the numbers. That there are more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade, 27 million people living in slavery today, more than any other time in history. Many of those millions bought, sold, and exploited for sex, and it's become one of the fastest-growing industries 
on earth. And I'd heard those numbers. They, they seemed distant to me. As long as they were numbers on a page, I could successfully pretend like those numbers or those individuals did not exist. That all changed a few months ago when I found myself in the Nupri Valley of Nepal, walking through village after village in the Himalayas, marked by massive poverty, the villages we were in. They found about 10 years ago in some research that half the kids weren't making it to age eight. Just massive poverty. But then to see the way traffickers prey on the poverty of these villages, all it takes is the offer of the equivalent of about $100 to a family living in that kind of poverty. Say, hey, we'll take your daughter down, your 10-year-old daughter down to the city where we'll get her a good job and she'll be able to make money to send back up to help you out. She'll be provided for. Bring her up to visit every once in a while. All it takes is about $100 for that family to say yes and to send their daughter up where she is taken either to Kathmandu or across border into other countries or cities where she is broken and drugged and raped and abused and quote-unquote put to work every day, sometimes 10 or 15 customers a day. And we know that is wrong. We scoff at that. And again, I'm grateful for entire movements today, particularly among younger evangelicals that are saying, this is wrong. We're going to fight against sex slavery. But I fear we may not realize how complicit we are in it. After all, and it's been talked about at this conference, research consistently shows that over half of men and increasing numbers of women in churches are actively viewing pornography. Statistics, not surprisingly, similar for pastors who lead these churches. Pornography, obviously a severe problem on a number of levels, but don't miss its connection to sex trafficking because research also demonstrates a clear link between sex trafficking and the production of pornography. Federal legislation has acknowledged this. Participants in the production of pornography have confirmed this. Exact figures of research are hard to pin down, but one anti-trafficking center reports that at least a third of victims trafficked for sex are used in the production of pornography. Another study on the relationship between prostitution, pornography, and sex trafficking found that one half of nearly 900 prostitutes in nine different countries reported pornography being made of them while they were in prostitution. So hear that and don't miss the connection. Men and women who indulge in pornography are creating the demand for more prostitutes and in turn fueling the sex trafficking industry. And do we realize what we're doing? Every time we view pornography online, we're contributing to a cycle of sex slavery from the privacy of our own computers. Fueling an industry that enslaves people for sex in order to satisfy selfish pleasure in living rooms, offices, or on mobile smartphones. Do we see the depth of irony here? And so many, think about college students watching documentaries, listening to speakers, holding charity walks and runs, raising money to help trafficking victims on campuses across our culture. Meanwhile, 90% of college males, over 30% of college females are viewing porn in their dorms, apartments, or on their phones. And not just non-Christian campuses. According to a recent study of evangelical Christian colleges, nearly 80% of male undergraduate students at these colleges 
have viewed internet pornography in the last year. Over 60% view it every week. So the hypocrisy is staggering, and the conclusion is clear. No matter how many red X's we write on our hands to end slavery, as long as those same hands are clicking on pornographic websites and scrolling through sexual pictures and videos, we're frauds to the core. Any and every time we indulge in pornography, we are contributing to injustice in the world and defying the judge of the world who loves these women in all of his grace. Which leads to the last missiological implication I want to put before you tonight. We must flee sexual immorality for the sake of God's glory in the world, must defend and display sexual complementarity for the spread of God's gospel in the world, work for justice in the world in order to exalt the judge of the world. And finally, corresponding to that fourth biblical foundation, because God pursues us with his redeeming love, we must spend our singleness and our marriages pursuing peoples still unreached by God's redeeming love. We must spend our singleness and our marriages pursuing peoples still unreached by God's redeeming love. So there are 6,567 people groups today comprising about 2 billion people who have never heard that God loves them enough to send his son to die on a cross for them. I've never heard of God's promise and provision of a Savior that we read and sing about in this room. And what I would say to this room based on the authority of God's Word is that husbands, God has given you a wife, and wives, God has given you a husband, or brothers or sisters whom God has given a gift in singleness, as we heard talked about earlier, God has given you husband, wife, our gift in singleness to be a part of changing that. Singleness, we've obviously talked about how marriage uniquely portrays the gospel, rightly so, but we sometimes miss how singleness also portrays the gospel in wonderful ways, how singleness portrays the Christian's ultimate identity in Christ when the world would say you need a husband or wife to complete you. And biblical singleness reminds us that's not true, that in Christ we're complete regardless of marital status. Amy Carmichael in her singleness once said, there's joy, joy found in nowhere else when we can look up into Christ's face when he says to us, am I not enough for thee, mine own? With a true, yes, Lord, thou art enough. And that way there's a sense in which the supremacy of Christ can be more powerfully portrayed in singleness than even in marriage. And the fact that singleness portrays the Christian's eternal identification with the church. We all know that familial Relationships will end at some point in this world. They're passing away. Only a relationship with Christ and his church is eternal. Marriage is temporary, Matthew 22. But Christ's relationship to his church is timeless. So married people only married in this life. Then for billions of years, we're going to be single. So singleness in that sense uniquely portrays our eternal state with Christ as a member of his church. So this is a gift. And it's a gift for a reason. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, don't squander your singleness. Talks about present distress and the difficulties in the culture and the attacks of the adversaries and the opportunity for the spread of the gospel. And so could it be, could it be that God's greatest impact in and through your life, single brother or sister, may come not in spite of your singleness, but because of your singleness? That the opportunities that are there for the spread of the gospel to people who have never heard are in, in unique 
wonderfully unique ways available to you, but not just to you. That's not where we say, okay, this mission is just for single brothers and sisters in Christ. Then no, married brothers and sisters. Do we remember the words of Adoniram Judson to his potential future father-in-law when he said to him in anticipation of marrying his daughter, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's a brother who saw marriage for the sake of mission. Who said marriage is not an end in and of itself. That I'm uniting together with a wife because together we're going to make the glory of Christ known in the world. We're going to display the gospel of Christ in the world. He wrote one morning to his, his, his future wife during the period of their betrothal. It's with, and they were about to go overseas together after they got married. It's with the utmost sincerity of my whole heart that I wish you, my love, a happy new year. May it be a year in which you will walk close with God, your frame calm and serene. May it be a year in which you'll have more largely the Spirit of Christ, and be willing to be disposed of in this world, just as God shall please. As every moment of the year will bring you nearer to the end of your pilgrimage, may it bring you nearer to God and find you more prepared to hail the messenger of death as a deliverer and a friend. This is not the most romantic letter you've ever heard. He continues, and now, since I have begun to wish, I will go on. May this be the year in which you will change your name, in which you will take final leave of your relatives and native land, in which you will cross the wide ocean and dwell on the other side of the world among a heathen people. What a great change will this year probably affect in our lives. How very different will be our situation and employment. If our lives are preserved and our attempt prospered, we shall next New Year's Day be in India. Perhaps wish each other a happy new year in the uncouth dialect of Hindustan. We shall no more see our kind friends around us or enjoy the conveniences of civilized life or go to the house of God with those that keep holy day. But swarthy countenances will everywhere meet our eye. The jargon of an unknown tongue will assail our ears. We shall witness the assembling of the heathen to celebrate the worship of idol gods. We shall be weary of the world and wish for wings like a dove that we may fly away and be at rest. Wives, future wives, are you encouraged? We shall probably experience seasons when we shall be exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. We shall see many dreary, disconsolate hours and feel a sinking of spirits, anguish of mind, of which now we can form little conception. Oh, we shall wish to lie down and die. This is true. He wrote this. And that time, he said, may soon come. One of us may be unable to sustain the heat of the climate and the change of habits. And the other may say, with literal truth over the grave, by foreign hands thy dying eyes were closed. By closed, my foreign hands thy decent limbs composed. By foreign hands thy humble grave adorned. But whether we shall be honored and moored by strangers, God only knows. At least either of us will be certain of one mourner. 
and his wife died on the field with at least one mourner standing over her grave. Marriage is not an end in and of itself. Marriage is just one picture in the global cosmic purpose of God to make his glory and his gospel known among the peoples of the world. He wants all the peoples to know that he loves them. He wants all the peoples in the world to know that he has sent his son to die for them. And so he has sent you and me in singleness and in marriage, portraying the gospel in this way or that, proclaiming the gospel everywhere we go. This is the purpose of marriage, for the display of the gospel and the demonstration of the glory of our God in the world. Let's not miss the purpose. Let's not miss the purpose in our culture, and let's not miss the purpose when it comes to cultures around the world that need to see this gospel and the glory of our God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we humbly thank you for creating us as you have, for designing us as you have. And we say together in this room, representing families, representing churches, use us, we pray, Use our singleness and use our marriages to demonstrate your glory and to display your gospel. And in so doing, use us, O oh God, to show the people around us in this culture and the peoples around us in all cultures who you are and how you love and how worthy you are of all their praise. Use our marriage and our singleness for the sake of mission, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on upcoming episodes. And remember, you can find more resources on marriage and singleness at ERLC.com.